as we were going through those songs, I was thinking, you know, we're talking about certainties, and we're singing certainties. In our spiritual growth class, we're talking about certainties. Everything in Scripture is certain, and it's a wonder, wonderful thing. Uh, let's turn in our Bibles, if you have them, or you can follow along on the screen to John chapter 1. We're look, excuse me, 1 John. We're in 1 John uh, working through the very first chapter, we looked at the first four verses the last couple of Sundays, starting in chapter, uh, verse 5 of 1 John chapter 1, we're going to read through the first verse of chapter 2. This is a message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. I'll stop there. As we come back to looking at certainties in a time an age of uncertainties when truth has become uncertain, of course, except the truth that truth is uncertain. John wants us to be sure that as believers, that we know the truth, that our salvation and our faith are solid, firm, and certain. Our salvation and our faith our faith are solid because of Jesus Christ, who is the Word of Life. And we talked about that last week. And last week we looked at five things that John was absolutely certain about when it comes to the Word of Life. It's permanent. It was from the beginning. It doesn't change. Neither he, as Jesus Christ, nor his Word change. It is able to be sensed. The disciples heard it. They saw it, beheld it. They touched it. They experienced it. They had to proclaim the word of life. They had to proclaim Jesus and everything about Jesus and the truth of Jesus. True fellowship is only found in and through the word of life. It's entering into that oneness with the Father and with the Son and the Holy Spirit, and therefore we enter into fellowship with one another as well. And then true joy, a complete joy, which we were singing about just a little while ago, is only found in that fellowship with Christ. Now, the passage that we read this morning deals with sin. In fact, the dominant word in the paragraph is sin. He even starts chapter 2 with, My dear children, I write to you that you will not sin. There's a certainty about sin that he is emphasizing in these verses with the metaphors of darkness and light, back and forth. But I'd rather focus on the positive, and so I've entitled the message, Confession of Sin, A Certain Evidence of Salvation. 
There are three main points that John is making in this passage. One, God is light, sin is darkness, and confession is coming back to the light. Now, the first certainty that we looked at last week is the coming into the world of the Son of God. What was the purpose of that? Well, Jesus himself said, I have come that they may have life, a new life, a spiritual life, an eternal life, but only through Jesus Christ, because he is a giver of life, because he is the word of life. The second certainty to which John addresses himself now is a matter of the certainty of salvation. John is absolutely certain that God in the flesh came, and he knows, John knows the purpose for which he came, and he knows that the results of believing in him, what they are going to be, and that is salvation. So the certainties of salvation that we're beginning to look at this morning really become the theme of the rest of the epistle. He wants us to make certain of our salvation. And the first certainty concerning salvation that he presents to us is the confession of sin. That, he is saying, is a certain proof of salvation, and we'll be getting into that aspect in a moment. But John's starting point, his premise for this certainty is found in verse 5 of that first chapter, where he says, this is a message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light, and and in him there is no darkness at all. John sharing the nature of God. The other gospel writers, for the most part, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell us about what God did, what Jesus did, his actions, and and it, it, it depicts the character of God. But John, although he tells about what God did, his focus in all of, in his different writings more about the character of God. God is spirit. God is light. God is love. He wants us to know who God is, not just what he does, has done, or will do. And that becomes foundational for the rest of his epistle that we're looking at, as well as for the passage we're looking at here this morning. He says, God is light. Now, it's interesting, there's no article there. It's not God is a light. It's not God is the light, but God is light. God is essential light That reality is presented throughout Scripture, and I'm going to harp on it just a little bit because we've we've got to understand the significance of what that statement is saying. Because if I I say to you, God is spirit, okay, yeah, I I, I get that, means God's immaterial. He doesn't have a physical body. If I say God is eternal, okay, I, I can... In my finite mind, I can grasp that. There's no beginning. There's no ending. I, I understand what God is eternal means. When I say God is love, we understand that, that that's, that's part of his character, and everything he does comes out uh, from a heart of love. But when I say God is light, what does that mean? The reality of that is very, very important for an understanding of the rest of this epistle because this is so foundational to the nature of God. We know in the Old Testament that God appeared as light. He led the Israelites through the wilderness with a bright cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. When God told Moses to lead his people, Moses said, I I can't do it without you. God said, well, my presence will be with you. And Moses said, how will I know that? Listen, show me your glory. 
Show me your glory. That's an interesting point that Moses was using. He didn't show me your physical self. Show me an indication. Show me your glory. And you know the story. <clears throat> God put Moses up on the mountain there in the cleft of a rock and, and passed before him, showing him only a portion of his glory, the great Shekinah glory that Scripture talks about. He couldn't show him the full glory, the full light, because God said, no one who sees me can live. And even the little bit that he did see affected Moses physically on his face, on his countenance, so that when he came down from the mountain to speak to the children of Israel, his face was shining with the reflection of that light, God's light. There's a lesson in there for us as well. If we've got the light of Christ living in us, we ought to be reflecting that light, just as Moses was reflecting that light as he saw the Shekinah glory of God. And, and when at the end of the book of Exodus, the tabernacle was completed, that light, which was God, came down from heaven, the Shekinah, the, present, uh, the, the, the presence of God, manifest light came down and came into that tabernacle and dwelt in the Holy of Holies. You remember in the New Testament when Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration Remember what, that, what took place there? He allowed the disciples to see who he really is. He kind of opened himself up just for a moment there, and he manifested himself as light. And you remember he was transfigured before them, the shining light, that Shekinah glory of God, and they fell down in terror. 1 Timothy chapter 6 describes God this way, God the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. The light is too glorious for any creature to see in all its fullness. In Psalm chapter 104, starting at verse 1, it says, Praise the Lord, my soul, Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. The Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. But not only is God light in himself, not only is he essential light, but he is a source of our light. In Psalm 27, verse 1, David opens by saying, The Lord is my light. And my salvation has now become personal. Not only does God manifest himself as light, God is light, but now he can be my light. That's amazing. What does that mean? Well, that becomes much more clear in the New Testament when we think about Jesus Christ. Jesus also is called the light of the world. God is light, and he conveys that light to us through his son, Jesus Christ, who then comes and lives in us, which then transforms us into the light of God. That's amazing. Philippians chapter 2, verse 15 says that we appear in the world as what? As light. Why? Because of Christ. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, You were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, God has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Of course, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, you are the light of the world. God is light, Jesus Christ is light, and we who come to Christ share in the light and become light. So the source of light is God. Now, let's go one step further. God is also the source of life. 
We talked about a source of light. He's a source of life. I want you to go back to John's gospel just a minute. You remember these verses, chapter 1, starting at verse 1. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. The world didn't know him. He came to his own, whom he created, right? Those who were his own did not receive him. Sorry, I'm, I'm jump down to verse 10. Let's go back to verse 1. Sorry. In the beginning... That's a good place to start. In the beginning was the Word. Who's the Word? Jesus. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him and apart Him. Nothing came into being that has come into being. Why? Verse 4, in Him was life. And listen to this. And the life was the light. Life and light. John is defining life as light, one and the same. So apart from God, apart from Jesus Christ, there is no light, and therefore there is no life. He, of course, is referring to both physical and spiritual life. God gives both. Then we read in verses 10 to 13 in that same chapter, chapter 1, he was in the world, and the world was made through him. The world didn't know him. He came to his own, whom he created. Verse 3, those who were his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a human's uh, husband's will, but born of God. He gave them spiritual life. They were born spiritually. Well, with that in mind, let's go back to verse 5 of 1 John chapter 1. This is the message, John says, we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. Okay, all that we just talked about, that's God. God is light, and in him, in him there's no darkness at all. Everything about him is light. Everything about him is life, is truth, is good. And in God's life, there is no darkness at all. What does that mean? There's no death, there's no sin. There's no bad. There's no evil. People don't get that sometimes. A lot of times. Surprising sometimes. People that I hear say, why did God do that? They want to blame God for the bad and evil that takes place. Why did God do that? They ask that, but he didn't. He didn't do that. It's the effect of sin and evil that is now present in the world because of what? <laughs> because of us. Because of mankind. Not God's fault. And John said, this is not just my opinion. This is the message that we heard from him. From whom? From Jesus Christ himself, the, the word of life. And we declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Then the question arises, well, how do we know who has received that light? How do we know who possesses the life, the eternal life of God? So with that premise that God is light, in the next few verses, John rejects the claims by those who have no right to claim the light. These are people within the church. And he affirms the reality of salvation to those who do have the right to that claim. And it comes down to the attitude towards sin. 
And in the passage that's before us here in the first chapter, John attacks the idea that someone can have eternal life who denies sin. However, it's a rather simple test to know who possesses eternal life because they're the ones that confess sin. And we'll be getting to that in a minute. Now remember the admonition of James in James chapter 1, verse 22? Do not merely listen to the word, of, uh, the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. There's a lot of people who listen, a lot of people who talk good. Don't just be listeners. Don't be, just be sayers. Be doers. And that's where John goes in his argument here in these verses. We're going to first look at those who claim to be in the fellowship. That's found in verse uh, 6, 8, and 10. And then we're going to look at verses 7 and 9, which describes those who actually are in the fellowship. Now, one thing to notice as we look at these three examples is that in all three cases, it's the absence of truth that is the issue. End of verse 6, they don't practice the truth. End of verse 8, the truth is not in them. The end of verse 10, his word or his truth is not in them. Nobody is saved, nobody is regenerated, nobody participates in salvation apart from the truth. What's the biggest issue in our society today? The truth, right? And it slipped into the church. We saw in the surveys that we looked at last week that 26% of evangelicals don't believe that the Bible is literally true. And that's the issue that John is having here with some of those that were in the church Back in his time when he was uh, pastoring the church of Ephesus and uh, encouraging the churches around him. Now here are the claims of false Christians that uh, John points to. And there are three of them. Number one, they claim to have fellowship, but they walk in darkness. Verse 6, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. This, this kind of person says, we're in the fellowship I'm a Christian. I go to church. But there's nothing interesting. There's nothing in this verse about sin. He doesn't bring up sin because it's not even a reality for them. I'm a Christian. I go to church. I do, I do the good things. Not concerned about sin. He, he says he has fellowship with God, but everything about his life is in the darkness. John says that kind of a person is a flat-out liar. He doesn't confess because he thinks the darkness is light. How deceived is that? Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 1. They don't understand fellowship. It's not just attending church and being in church activities. We talked about that last week. The word fellowship here means being in a partnership with God. One in Christ, having received the light of God's life, actually having eternal life. And if this is what they're saying, and there are many, many in churches that do, just because they say they have fellowship with him, their word means nothing if they are walking in darkness, if they are constantly living in sin as defined by God's word. John says they, have just, they are just lying to themselves and lying to everyone else. And he says, be careful with them. Don't get caught up with that. Secondly, they claim to be without sin. In verse 8, they actually claim to have no sin, and they therefore are self-deceived, and the truth is not in them. 
If I claim, verse 8 says, to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. This person is not confessing because he thinks he's reached a state where he doesn't sin anymore. Some kind of state of perfection, I guess. He, if, if he says he has no sin, he, he actually recognizes that there is sin. He just doesn't have any. So there's really no sin for him to be concerned about. If he did have any sin, either it was in the past, that was you know, way back long ago, or you know, I, was, I was just mistaken about what sin really was. I, I've, I'm more enlightened now which is what the Gnostics came to be known for and those, those who had ascended to a higher knowledge, right? We're more enlightened. And that's the reasoning that's being used today in the extreme sexual revolution that we're experiencing here in our own culture. We have a greater insight now than those uh, primitive people 2,000 years ago. Things have changed. I've heard that those who say that we need to update our Bible to catch up with the times and our knowledge... In our wisdom. Listen to this passage from a gospel that I just came across this past week. See if you recognize it. And a woman whose heart was divided between spirit and body came before him. In quiet despair, she asked, Lord, I come to you estranged, for my spirit and body are not one. How shall I hope to enter the kingdom of God? Jesus looked upon her with kindness, replying, My child, Blessed are those who strive for unity within themselves, for they shall know the deepest truths of my Father's creation. Be not afraid, for in the kingdom of God there is no man nor woman, as all are one in spirit. The gates of my Father's kingdom will be open for those who love and are loved, for God looks not upon the body, but the heart. What gospel is that in? Gospel of Satan, good answer. It sounds very biblical, doesn't it? I mean, the verbiage is there. How many of you have heard of chat GPT? Okay, there's a few. Good for you. I hadn't heard it until I was doing some research here. Apparently, it's a natural language processing tool, some kind of a chat box, um, driven by AI, artificial intelligent technology, that allows you to have human-like conversations and much more in that chat box. Well, a user of this program apparently goes by the name Psychological Dog 527, that should give you some indication perhaps, said he was feeling sad when he asked ChatGPT to generate a fake biblical passage about Jesus accepting trans people, which he then posted. I know it's not real, he wrote, but it gave me some comfort. It made him feel better or perhaps even good about his lifestyle. He didn't have to feel guilty. But John says, if you claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Thirdly, they claim to not have sinned. If we claim, verse 8, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. Excuse me, this is probably verse 10. No, verse 8. Um, and his word is not in us. There, there were some in John's day, as there still are today in growing numbers, that don't acknowledge sin in their life at all and claim they've never sinned. But that, this claim is so contrary to what God says in Scripture that they are actually making God out to be a liar. 
And obviously, his word cannot be in such people, even within the church. It shows that they don't know the truth of the gospel. They don't know the truth about sin. They go together. And John says that none of these claimers, all three categories, none of these claimers are in the fellowship. None are in the light. None of them are saved. Well, that's really judgmental. It's the truth. And John wants to declare that truth. They fail the test of a right understanding of their own sinful nature. People need to understand that. The first guy thinks that his sin is actually righteousness. The second person thinks he's reached a state where he doesn't sin anymore. And the third one has never sinned. One can't claim to be in the light while they're walking in darkness. Again, darkness is anything, any lifestyle that is contrary to God's word. The expression walking in darkness means it's a way of life. It's a lifestyle. It's what we habitually do. Now we come to the crux of the matter for us as believers. The certainty of salvation. John's purpose in this epistle is to offer proofs of salvation. And we're going to see those as we go through the rest of 1 John. And he does that to offer tests by which a true believer can be distinguished from the false. One of those is the confession of sin. Starting in verse 8, it says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And listen to verse 9. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. There's a distinct line, a distinct line drawn between those who are true believers and those who are not. The false deny their sin, the true confess their sin. And the forgiveness that God provides for us is so comprehensive that it removes from the believer all defilement, all shame, all guilt, all punishment forever. And it replaces it with righteousness, security, and an eternal reward. Listen to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. Paul says, "...and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth." the gospel of your salvation, when you believed, you are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. This is the gift of forgiveness. It's inviolable. It is irrevocable. Nothing and no one can cause the forgiveness of God granted to the believer to be taken back to be rescinded. No one can talk God out of it or change his mind or successfully bring an accusation against that believer that would cause God to cancel that forgiveness. Not happening. The supreme promise that we hold on to with regard to that is found in the 8th chapter of Romans. Listen, starting in verse 1. Therefore, this is amazing, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's an amazing statement. That's a comprehensive statement. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are Christ, if you belong to Christ, there is no condemnation for you. Woohoo! Isn't that great? 
Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Refers to what Christ did for us on the cross. Ben talked about that in one of our first songs this morning. The blood being applied once for all. Then to prove his point, verse 33 of Romans 8, Paul asks a question and answers it. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one, Paul says. He comes back to that point in verse 1. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus who died, he goes on to say, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. And John talks about that in the beginning of chapter 2 in his first epistle. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. We're going to be looking at that next Sunday. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ, Paul asks in verse 35. And his conclusion is nothing. I am convinced, he says in verse 38, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers... Neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Talk about certainties. Folks, no one can bring a successful accusation against us before God because as a judge of all the earth, he's already rendered his unchangeable verdict. What all this is saying is that when God forgives our sin, it is absolutely permanent. Back in Romans chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, quoting actually from Psalm 32, Paul says, Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered, applied, covered by the blood of Christ. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against him. The Old Testament says he's buried them in the depths of the deepest sea. He's removed them as far as the east is from the west. That's, that's infinity. And he remembers them no more. Galatians 3 tells us that Christ, having borne the curse for us, we are no longer under the curse of sin. We are freed from that curse because Christ came, became a curse for us. Again, there is no condemnation. If you are a believer, if you are a Christian, then all your sins for all time have been forgiven. That's a statement. How does that work? It works because Christ paid the penalty for our sin, all of them, once for all. Now, how do we reconcile that truth? All of our sins have been forgiven. With our verse here in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, where John says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And the verb here to confess our sins is in the verb tense, um, it, it's, it's a continuous verb tense, meaning that we need to continue to confess our sins. Why? If all our sins have already been forgiven and paid for, why do we have to continue to confess them? 
Well, let me give you an example to bring these two concepts together and perhaps be just a little bit more understandable. It's actually an example that Jesus himself gave to us in the upper room. The Last Supper, Peter, uh, conversation he was having in Peter in John chapter 13. This is the instance of Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. Most explanations that I've heard talk about the lesson that this is giving is about servanthood. Being humble enough to serve others. That's a good lesson. And we all need to learn that. And that's certainly part of it. But I think there's something much more profound going, here, going on here. Listen, listen carefully to the conversation Jesus has with Peter. Now starting in verse 4 of John 13, we are told that Jesus got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Now, this was common practice. This wasn't anything unusual that Jesus doing, except that it was Jesus doing it. Everyone who wore sandals, the roads were dusty, they were muddy, and since you were reclining, your feet were right next to the person reclining next to you. So this was the commonest of courtesy normally done by the lowest of servants. But since no one did it, there wasn't a low servant in that upper room. Since no one did it, Jesus did, and he did it on purpose because it helps us understand these two kinds of forgiveness that we're talking about. Verse 6, Jesus came to Simon Peter, it's his turn, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. And it's here in John chapter 1, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, John is explaining to us what Peter meant back there in that upper, supper, uh, in that upper room, the last supper. Excuse me? What Jesus meant. What did I say? What Peter meant? What Jesus meant. Okay, verse 8. So Jesus comes to him. Jesus came to Simon Peter who said, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, no. Uh, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you'll understand. No, said Peter. You shall never wash my feet. That's just too demeaning. You're, you're too great for that. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. Now what Jesus was referring to there was he was looking ahead to the cross what he was going to be doing and the blood that he was going to be shedding. And he, was already, he had already applied that to Peter. Peter was a believer. He was a follower of Jesus Christ. Unless I wash you, you have no part of me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter said, not just my feet, but my hands, my head as well, everything. And Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And listen to this, and you are clean. Isn't that interesting? You are clean. Jesus is saying, Peter, you're already clean, just not all of you. Are you catching what Jesus is laying down here? This is the distinction that we were talking about. You see, I'm, I'm sure Peter took an appropriate bath before coming to that dinner. He was basically clean. He didn't need his head and hands uh, all washed. He didn't need to be literally doused with water, but his feet had gotten dusty and dirty. 
Bathing the whole body here illustrates one kind of washing, one kind of forgiveness. It illustrates what theologians call the positional forgiveness of justification, which just means that those who are justified by God as being declared free from the penalty of sin, we are free from the penalty of sin forever. The penalty of sin being death, separation from God, that's, that's no longer on the table. We are positionally in Christ, forgiven and justified. See, God's justice was satisfied forever through the sacrifice of Christ. So bathing illustrates the positional forgiveness of justification. We have once for all been justified before God by Christ's sacrifice. We are in Christ. That's our position. That's that positional uh, forgiveness. We are in Christ. The washing of feet, on the other hand, illustrates the relational forgiveness of sanctification, of holiness. John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So if all of our sins have already been paid for at the cross, why is John telling us now to confess our sins? Remember, he's not talking about salvation here. He's writing to believers. He's writing to believers, people that are already saved, people already followers of Christ. The primary meaning of the word confess is to say the same thing as another, to agree with. So when John says we are to confess our sins to God, means that we are agreeing with God that we were wrong, that we have sinned. That's our attitude. That's a believer's attitude about sin. We understand sin. We realize that we have done wrong. We are admitting our sin to God, and He forgives us through that confession on an ongoing basis and purifies us because of the fact that He is faithful and just. Now, how is God faithful and just? Hang in with me here. He is faithful by forgiving sins, which He has promised to do for all who receive Christ. That's His promise already. So He is faithful keeping that promise. He is just... By applying, which we talked about earlier, by applying Christ's payment for our sins, recognizing that the sins have already been paid for. He knows that Christ paid for the sins, and he takes that and applies it today when we sin. Remember, the wages of sin is what? It's death. But Christ has paid for that pardon. So the ongoing confession, as we are convicted by the Holy Spirit, keeps us holy before God. Remember, I, I talked about confession being brought back into the light again. 1 Peter 1.16 quotes Leviticus chapter 11 when he writes, Be holy, because I am holy. By the ongoing confession of sin, we bring ourselves back into holiness. And some people say, you know, we, we, we leak we leak because we're weak and we fall into sin and we have to bring ourselves back into that holiness. It brings us back to the fullness of light, getting rid of that darkness which we have allowed through sin. This verse is actually a promise on God's part, not a condition for salvation. Again, he's writing to believers. He's writing to Christians in the churches. If we confess our sins, he is not he will be, he is faithful and just, and therefore will forgive our, us our sins and do what? Purify us, bringing us back to holiness. Purify us from all unrighteousness. Bring us back to that state of holiness. The concept of relational forgiveness is based on the fact 
that when we sin, we offend God. We grieve the Holy Spirit. Paul talks about grieving the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4, verse 30. We hinder and hurt our relationship with Him. While God has ultimately forgiven us of the sins that we commit, they still result in a blocking or a hindrance in our relationship with Him. You felt it yourself. I certainly have. When a young boy who sins against his father is not thrown, he's not thrown out of the family, he's not disowned, he's part of the family, right? And a godly father will forgive his children unconditionally. However, a good relationship between the father and son cannot be achieved until the relationship is restored, and that comes through confessing the wrong, confessing the sin, confessing our mistakes to our father and apologize. That's why we confess our sins to God, not to maintain our salvation in fear of losing our salvation if we sin one too many times, but to bring ourselves back into that close fellowship with God that John was talking about in the first few verses, who loves us and who has already forgiven us. This is how we become, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 15, blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Why? Why is that important? Number one, to bring us back into a holy relationship with God. Yes. But Paul adds a second reason. Then you will shine among them. Among whom? Among the warped and crooked generation. You will shine among them like stars in the sky. When we are back in that right relationship with God, in that state of holiness and purity with God, then that light of Jesus Christ shines through us to those that are around us. So why is confession of a sin a certainty of salvation? Because for a believer, it has become a pattern of our lives to be constant confessors. Never denying our sin but always acknowledging our sin and always then enjoying the ongoing benefits of that confession and that repentance. Shows a change in our life, a transformation in our life has taken place in our hearts. That's why if, if you are one that confesses your sin on a regular basis, asking the Holy Spirit to convict and we confess, we, we are in that, in, in that family of God because that's, that's a part of who we are. That's how we can be what Jesus told us that we are. You are the light of the world. Can you say that? I am the light of the world. Can we say that together? I am the light of the world. That's a huge statement. Is that true? Is, is that light shining <laughs> brightly in your life? Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, For you were once darkness. You were once. No more. You're not that anymore. That's not what we are. But now, he says, you are light in the world. And then he tells us to do something with that. He says, live as children of light. And that's by being sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And when he convicts us, of something that we have done wrong, something that is displeasing to him, something we've done against somebody else, we need to be quick to confess that. And God says, yep, there it is. I'm applying that forgiveness to you because it's already done. I just need to hear the confession. Father, this morning we thank you that you are such a wonderful God. 
You know our weaknesses. You know it personally through Jesus Christ who became one like us with all the weaknesses and all the failures, all the temptations available to him that come to us as well. And yet he was without sin. So you, you understand what we go through. But Father, you have given us victory. And we need not be in that mode of sinning, in that dark lifestyle, walking in darkness. In fact, we are to, be, we are to walk in the light because we are children of light. We are your children. You are light. Christ gave us light as, as we accepted him into our lives, and now we are the light. And Father, I pray that you would just do a, an amazing clearing process in our minds and our hearts. Speak to us individually. Point out to us where there are areas that are displeasing to you, where there are areas that we need to come to you and say, you know, I never really thought about that. It's just kind of what I've always done. But I realize now that that is sin that's displeasing to you. I admit that. Please forgive me. And you are faithful and just. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.